Hello and welcome to the Consistency Project with E.C. Sinkowski. My name is Patrick Cummings, and every episode I have the privilege of having a discussion with E.C. on subject matters that range from nutrition to fitness to the choices we can all make to live a healthier, more functional life. By exploring both the principles at play and the actions worth carrying out as a result, it's our goal to get you thinking, get you moving, and get you taking more consistent steps toward optimizing your well-being. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning into the show. Hello, E.C. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm excited. We're doing a hot cakes, hot cakes. Um, which we haven't done in a little bit. Hot cakes is, uh, it's really just my excuse to have a little fun with you. Um, and <laughs> to, to quite honestly, to lessen the burden of your research every once in a while. Um, <laughs> so for folks listening, clearly, it, or it's clear to me that EC, when you do these episodes, these are normal episodes, uh, you are diving deep into the research to figure out, you know, what it says so that you can start to piece together uh, an episode. And hotcakes, I literally 24 hours before the episode records, I send you some stuff I've seen on the internet. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, I'm going to make you talk about this tomorrow. So okay. you don't have the chance. You don't. Have, I send it to you in a, 24 hours in advance. So you don't do your natural response, which is, okay, let me go look at the research. Oh, I know. Um, and so it's, it's really a little hard. Bit, Even um, with the 24 hours, I sometimes am like, ooh, what does this say? <laughs> so, um, so that's what we're going to do. So how, how the format works is I, uh, I sent you three articles, three things I found on the internet recently. Um, and we're just going to kind of talk about them. We're not going to talk about the people or even the places that we found these things. The, yeah. the purpose is just like the ideas inherent in here. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes what I'm sending you are just like, oh, that's interesting oh, to me. I'd love to know what EC thinks about it. Or that's really confusing and that seems kind of absurd and I'd love to know EC's take on it. So yeah. we've got three things today as we do. Um, and let's just jump into the first one. The first is a um, something I found I saw on Instagram. It's from a uh, very well-known uh, person on, uh, just well-known yeah. person. He is on Instagram. He's got over 2 million followers. He's a, he's a um, author, a physician, and a uh, um, something to do with functional medicine, if I'm, yes. if I'm not mistaken. So here's what the post uh, mostly said. I'll, I'll condense it a bit. It says, Alzheimer's is now being called type 3 diabetes, uh, and he lists four ways to prevent cognitive decline, eat less sugar, manage stress, get quality sleep, and exercise. And then he kind of, in his caption, uh, gave a little bit more context to each one of those things. And so what I was curious about is I remember – Back in the the CrossFit days, for us, um, Rob, at least I believe it was Rob Wolf. He was the nutrition kind of guy. He was the group, yep. and he said back in again, I, I'm I'm guessing a little bit, but somewhere in like the late 2000s, 2009, 2010, like that's when I first heard this idea of Alzheimer's is is mm. type three diabetes. Yeah, but I haven't really heard much about it since then, or any more than a couple people claiming that this is this is what. Uh, Alzheimer's actually is. And so I mostly just like, it just reminded me of that question or that connection. And I'm just curious your take on, are we more clear on that than we were back in 29, 10, whatever, when I first heard it? Yeah. Is it a little bit of a, a lot of people kind of just like connecting things that shouldn't be connected or what's going on with that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure people who are at the forefront of Alzheimer's, um, no more than, you know, whenever we first heard about it back in 2010, for sure. But yeah, I mean, it appears that, well, one, there is a significantly higher incidence or risk for people developing Alzheimer's if they have type 2 diabetes. And so I think mm-hmm. that's some of the link. And so I certainly think some of this type 3 diabetes name is more 
like, let's research this more in nature than necessarily a diagnostic. But I think some of the implications are, you know, when somebody is type two diabetic, there is some issues with how they utilize glucose as an energy source. And so that could be a problem in the brain, as well as some of the insulin sensitivity issues that we find with type two diabetes, I think, as far as I understand, is involved with limiting some of the or part of the issue with the plaque formation that we see in the brain with Alzheimer's. So I think there's some really interesting things going on with both glucose and insulin in the brain and such why that name remains. But I don't think, well, I know they haven't totally elucidated the mechanism and, and how it develops and all of that stuff. Would it be like, what would be the advantage if there is any in your mind of calling it type three diabetes, other than like, mm-hmm. if, if that is in fact, you know, mechanistically what it is, yeah. is that in, in any way, do you, do you feel like in any way that would benefit us generally or researchers or people prone to it? If suddenly it was called type three diabetes versus what it is now, which is just, we'll just call it Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I think potentially from the standpoint of if we accept that type two diabetes is often preventable, not always, um, often preventable, then perhaps we can take the same by linking the two in our mind. We'll be like, okay, cool. Well, if I stick with this diet and exercise thing, I'm also reducing my risk of, um, you know, Alzheimer's. And so I think it's useful from that perspective of like, yeah, that this can be potentially prevented in many of the same ways, which is not surprising with, with what he actually says in his post right. for recommending. And I don't actually have any problems. I think with most of his recommendations, I think it was sort of in that part when he was talking about sugar that got a little bit sticky mm-hmm. for me, but for the most part, I agree with the the general post. And like, if people associate it with type two diabetes and from the standpoint of prevention, good. I think where it might get a little sticky is if people think that they can maybe necessarily reverse it or treat it in ways that of course the disease would be different than the diabetes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So again, just, uh, just before we move on to the next one, eat less sugar, manage stress, get quality sleep and exercise. Those are kind of his four prescriptions for, um, what do you say? Prevent, preventing cognitive decline. Mm-hmm. I imagine that you wouldn't argue, you kind of just alluded to, you wouldn't argue with those. Would you change them? Would you, is any of them worth adding some context to? I like all of them. I think it was mostly in the caption when he said, eating sugar and refined carbs can cause pre-dementia and dementia. Mm. By cutting out the sugar and refined carbs and adding lots of fat can prevent and even reverse pre-dementia and early dementia. Dementia. Sugar causes pre-diabetes and diabetes, which often leads to significant memory loss. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. (laughs) Mm. That's a lot for me because um, we never hear the word dose in there. We never distinguish what sugar is. We never acknowledge the role of fat in insulin resistance, which I think gets overlooked in a lot of mainstream nutrition. We touched on that somewhere, but like fat has a big role in insulin resistance and it's always just blamed on too many carbs. Right. And so this paragraph to me totally embodies all of that. Um, and so I just would want more nuance there. Do I think we, we need to decrease the amount of sugar? Yes. But eating less sugar and eating sugar are two different statements. <laughs> mm, and so that's yep. why I appreciated the post was eat less sugar. But then when you yep. read the caption to totally develop those ideas, it becomes more absolute and therefore wrong. Got it. Okay. Uh, that was our first one. We're going to move on yeah. to our second one. Uh, this is also from Instagram. I swear I don't spend all my time <laughs> on Instagram. Um, but it just so happens that this time around, we've got two of the three. This one is from another well-known, uh, personality. I don't know what to call these folks. Um, uh, 
618,000 on Instagram, New York, New York Times bestselling author. Um, uh, here's what the post uh, says, just a simple post. It says, the amount of protein you eat for your first meal strongly predicts the amount of calories you'll consume the rest of the day. Mm. More protein equals fewer calories. Why is nobody talking about this? And then in the caption, uh, he said, research published in Obesity found that the amount of protein eaten during uh, eaten during the first meal of the day had a profound influence on what people went on to eat at subsequent meals. This is interesting to me. We, I mean, we've talked about uh, nutrient timing before. Certainly talked about protein, um, but I'm curious your thoughts on this. Yeah, is this is this as as uh, as interesting as he is claiming it to be? You know, in a lot of ways, I like it a lot because one of the things that I talk about all the time is is I don't think breakfast is an important meal of the day in terms of the nutrient timing matters. I think it matters from a psychological point of view that when you start mm. off the morning with a good breakfast, I think you're more motivated and interested to continue that pattern for the rest of the day. There's very few times, uh, do I want to say that? I would say if I look at my track record, the days that I start off with donuts are more likely to have a continued downhill slide yep. than start off the day with donuts and then be like, you know what? I really want some spinach right now. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and so I do like it from the standpoint of like, I think breakfast is a really big um, indication of how the day is going to go. Do I think it needs to be protein? No, because we have mm. research that shows that people who eat breakfast are healthier overall, right? And again, mm. do I think it's the breakfast per se? No, I think it's how it's teeing up the rest of the day. I think I wouldn't be surprised if we were to find, you know, the more fruits and vegetables at breakfast predict the calories, the more that has less sugar. I mean, you pick your kind of metric that basically says the person is not eating a lot of processed foods. I think we're going to find overall it probably predicts caloric intake across the day. And so that's, that's what I didn't love about it. It's like, why is nobody talking about this? To me, I could see people interpreting this as, oh my gosh, um, you know, I only have 20 grams of, of protein at breakfast, but I'm having two cups of fruits. I better switch now to a full steak. And it's like, uh, it probably might not actually matter that much in that case, you know? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, do you think, so it says the first meal of the day mm. predicts. I imagine, at least technically speaking, if your first meal was at noon, right? Mm -hmm. If you were fasting in the morning, that this would, at least the argument would would maintain. Yeah. It's not as if it's something about like eating breakfast or eating high protein at, you know, within 60 minutes of waking up is blah, 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 right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's merely, to your point, it's, it's merely like, what is, what is the setup here? Whether it's mm -hmm. 8 a.m., 6 a.m. Or, or noon. Yeah, I think so. I think that's really the benefit of it. Now, we actually do find, I mean, I, I'd want to double check on this, but I'm pretty sure that people who skip breakfast are worse off. So I'm mm. assuming that this research was done with the assumption that it's some type of breakfast and they're not waiting till 1 p.m. to have this steak. But even in that case, if we were to break it like that, like these people are really waiting till later in the day, that if you start off your meal with a significant amount of protein, again, it's hard to do a significant amount of protein that doesn't look something like steak you know, and I, in my opinion, vegetables or potatoes or like that, because what are you going to do? Like a big amount of tuna and Skittles. I mean, like just the rest <laughs> of the meal is often set by that protein requirement. So yeah. anyway, I, I think in both cases, even if they're waiting till later in the day that a big protein meal just basically means it's a bigger quality meal and just tease them up for that continued pattern. So he says the, the amount of protein you eat. So then would that in your mind, if it, I know you're saying that 
it's probably not specifically the protein. Yeah. But but there seems to be at least a correlation with like more being better here. Totally. Again, he says more protein equal fewer calories later on in the day. Is do you in your mind is that just getting back down to well you're just you just you're just full <laughs> mm-hmm. and therefore you eat less throughout the day. You know, we've talked about this a little bit before in the previous hotcakes. I think I had a post that somebody was saying like 25 grams yeah. Basically, a protein four or five days, five, four times a week, uh, yeah. four or five times a day, um, and I think your point to there was just like, well, yeah, that's just a lot of calories, and so you're probably going to eat less of the other stuff as you go. Totally. Is that kind of a similar argument here? I, I think so. I mean, protein is satisfying more so than the other macronutrients. So, you know, I don't want to say that. It, um, yeah, protein is more satisfying. Let me leave it there for now. And so if somebody's eating more protein though, again, like how does that shake out in a meal? I can get five, 10 grams of protein from ice cream. I can't get 50 or at least in the quantity that I would realistically consider for breakfast. I mean, I guess I could eventually, but you know what I mean? Like if I'm somebody's really creating a meal, if they're going to get 40 to 50 grams of protein, it's going to start to look like what we would consider a meal. Again, some whole food protein base with then something to accompany it and less like, um, I don't know, you know, the, the donuts or the pastries or some type of frappuccino with some milk protein in it. Right. And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. as the protein increases, in my opinion, it's going to start to look more and more like a meal because that's the only way that it's realistically going to be carried out. Super interesting. Um, the, the, why is nobody talking about this part (laughs) of it? Like just thoughts on that. Like it, like it, is this, it's again, it's one of those things that's like, I found the magic pill, mm. right? Why is nobody talking about this? Um, is that helpful? Like what, when you see people like this with an audience and again, it doesn't matter really who it is, but let's just say they've got an audience. Yeah. Um, is that helpful in your mind or is it just adding to the noise that you're often trying to cut through? I think that's a really interesting point. I am. Um, I see this a lot when people come across something in their life it's oftentimes something that's like a new or a new challenge. And they'll be like, no one is talking about this. Yeah. Like, no one is talking. I hear this a lot. And I'm going to give the example of menopause. People will tell me that like, no one's, talk- I'm like, people, it's constant. I cannot not hear a day <laughs> without it. And to me, it's sort of the phenomenon of like, you've heard of like, when you want to buy a new car and you think of the car that you want to buy, all of a sudden you start seeing it everywhere. Yeah. I think that's a lot of how it works with how we learn about something. When we learn something new, it's like so revolutionary to us. It's like, no one's talking about this. And it's like, people have been talking about protein at breakfast multiple, <clears throat> many, <laughs> many times. And nutrient timing has been sliced and diced in so many different ways, you know, um, that I think some of the, whenever we hear, why is no one talking about this? It's like, you, this is, no one you've been listening to has been talking about this. <laughs> yep. And listening can just be like our, you know, our selective listening because of what we're interested in at the time. Um, and I get it. And I've, I've certainly been like, oh my gosh, this is so important. And I'm like, come to learn. It's like, oh, this has been hundreds of thousands of people's lives work before me. <laughs> Plenty of people have been talking about this. I'm late to the party, you know? <laughs> I love that. Okay. Let's move on to our third and final um, thing. I don't yeah. know what call this. Uh, this is actually um, an article, um, not an Instagram post. Um, and this is the title is, um, a lab grown meat startup gets the FDA's stamp of approval. And so this is about, I'll just read the first paragraph. 
Um, cultivated meat has been greenlit in the United States for the first time. The decision by the FDA means that a company called Upside Foods will soon be able to sell chicken made from real animal cells grown in bioreactors instead of requiring the slaughter of live animals. And I just want to read um, one more. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll read two more little things just to kind of put it on the table and then we can chat. Um, the FDA decision means that cultivated meat products may soon be available to the public to try, although it's likely that their that tastings will be limited to a very small number of exclusive restaurants. It's just an interesting bit of context. And then the last bit is just cultivated meat is different from plant-based meats because it contains real animal cells and is theoretically indistinguishable from real meat itself. Cells are initially isolated from an animal and developed into cell lines that are frozen. Small samples from these cell lines can then be transferred to bioreactors, usually uh, large steel tanks, where the cells are fed growth media containing the nutrients that cells need to divide. Once the cells have grown and differentiated into the correct kind of tissue, they can be harvested and used in cultivated meat products. Okay. So I just want to add that because I wouldn't have known what cultivated meat means right. if not, if I didn't yeah. read that uh, paragraph. So um, initial thoughts, cultivated meat. Cultivated meat. Well, I certainly wasn't aware of how far this was along to being uh, released as like a real product or yeah. anything like that. So that was super interesting. Um, one of the things that I was looking at with the cultivated meat thing, because I do do a very small amount of Googling after you send this to me, like, <laughs> what surprise. is going on here? Um, is I just love the word cultivated um, mm. because we had a bonus episode, which isn't available anymore, but um, on genetically modified and genetic engineering and some of the stuff that's really hard for them to overcome with acceptance is the term because everybody yeah. thinks it's this like Franken food and that it's something just made in a lab and therefore dangerous. And so I was reading some article and gosh knows how true it was and stuff like that. But the word cultivated, I think generally in most people's mind, it's more of a positive one than let's yep. say like lab based meat, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. genetically modified meat or whatever. And it's not, you know, genetically modified in the same way as what we talked about there. But anyway, I think you get the point. There's this like positive connotation to it. And I think there was probably a good amount of effort put into that such that, um, people would respond to it in a better way. So that, yeah. that was sort of my first thing is like cultivated. Like, what does that mean exactly? What does that even mean? Yeah. yeah. And so I think that's interesting. Yeah, that is really important just in terms of like it, as a practice of branding, like sometimes it's the, the most important thing is to invent a new idea or, or invent a new category. One, so that you can kind of define what it is, but two, so that you can separate yourself from the other things that, that maybe don't have a negative um, perception, but just you don't want to be associated. You want to be able to right. create a category for yourself so that you can be the, the best in that category. Right. So that's, that's what, that strikes me as probably what happened with, you know, quote unquote cultivated. Yeah. It was like, well, nobody, nobody knows what that means. So we get to define it now, which Definitely. is good for us because we can define it in a way that's positive. positive. Way. Yeah. 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 Um, FDA approval. Hmm thoughts on like, I, I don't really know what that means. I just, I, I assume it's rigorous enough that there, there are enough hurdles in the way of that, that perhaps that's, um, wor worthy of mention. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't totally know what they would do with like a new food product. I mean, I have to kind of look into the regulation of that, but if it's anything like when people release new products with additives and, and whatever else ingredients, they're going to have to show some level of safety. Um, and so, you know, I think there should be some level of confidence with that for sure. I think that's a, it's a huge first step. Um, you know, I think what will we, what we will learn over time is 
you know, FDA approval doesn't mean necessarily as healthy. And so one of the things that I was looking up about this is, yes, it looks like getting the protein equivalent seems to be okay and, and the fat ratio and they can control all of that. Whether or not it will be as micronutrient dense from my very quick, uh, very quick review might still left to be determined or maybe won't be as good as. So I think there's still going to be some work to be done to see like, hey, what is the nutritional quality of this? And is it truly the equivalent of, you know, chicken or steak or whatever? Or is it kind of a less than product? But the FDA approval is huge, I think, in terms of safety. I remember at one point... (laughs) At one point I was like, Hey, we should do an episode on, on like the impossible burger or something, yes. whatever, like whatever, like the plant-based. Yes. And I remember you were like, yeah, I tried it. And then I don't think we ever talked about it again. Right. And I don't think we've ever done. It. So I don't know if it's worth kind of unpacking a little bit, but there is, to me, the thing that was really interesting about this is not only the idea of the cultivated meat, which we kind of, uh, um, um, keyed in on right away, but the difference between cultivated meat, quote unquote, and mm-hmm. the plant-based plant-based meats um, and why and where and why it's, or or how it matters or why it matters that Mm. they are, or we are going to make this distinction. Yeah. Well, one would be from the amino acids, right? So a meat-based product that the protein is going to be made of more of the essential amino acids that we're looking for. Now, I don't think that's a big limiter in diets because we've talked about before, so long as you don't eat the same exact protein source for your plant-based every single time and you have some diversity, you can get all the amino acids you need. But certainly you could argue that this would be a superior product if people were limited in the foods that they had. I think another one with uh, kind of the plant-based, you know, burger versus kind of cultivated meat is the plant-based burger. There still has to be like the cropping and fields to grow the plants to then put it to the burger where this is like, Hey, we have a bioreactor and we're growing meat. And so the scale at which you have to have resources is decreased as far as I understand for the bioreactor product versus kind of a plant-based product. So that's interesting too, to maybe have now an animal-based solution that actually is mm-hmm. less intensive than the than kind of the plant-based solution. Um, and so I think that's an important distinction because I think there could be something there. I mean, just reducing the amount of agriculture that has to go into, you know, fields for whether or not the animals or fields for the crops to build the burgers something like that, that's a huge resource save to be able to produce food. And so I think that's, it's really promising. It's got some limitations right now of, of being able to work at scale, but yeah. yeah. Um, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about this. The, the article doesn't, and this is just a simple, like pretty mainstream uh, media outlet. So this is, a, this is effectively a, a glorified press release, Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, which is fine. It's still useful for our, for our use. Um, but what, what isn't in the article is why this matters. Like why, Mm. why is anybody investing the the amount of money that I'm sure is quite large in figuring out cultivated meats? And you just kind of alluded to, to maybe my question, which is, is it the production end of things? Like, oh, we can make a lot more without the, um, without the, 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 whatever, the overhead, the, the product, the, the process of, organic yeah. meats, yeah. right? So is it a, is it an environmental? Is it a economic argument? The plant-based meats is to me, strikes me as a, as a, um, ec- uh, as an environmental argument, mm-hmm. but there's also the, are, is anybody making in either of those, the health argument? Mm. These are healthier than the chicken you buy at the grocery store. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do think 
that there's a lot of different arguments for this one. Some of them could be environmental, just less inputs. And so one, we could reduce on um, emissions, but two, also less like environmental pollutants to use to produce the fields for the grass, for the cow, you know, whatever it is, all of that stuff. Um, I think there's also some arguments for ethical. We don't have to have all of these animals in concentrated animal, you know, feeding operations. So we wouldn't be subjecting all of these animals to kind of a food production line. There's also, I think I saw in an article, you know, we'd be using less antibiotics to grow food, Mm -hmm. which can also help Mm -hmm. from an antibiotic resistance point of view. So that's really interesting and also ethical, again, treatment of animal animals. Um, I think the health thing is interesting. I did see it has the potential to potentially like decrease on like E. coli poisoning, right? Cause we don't have handling of the food and then cross-contamination of that. So certainly from a health perspective there, that kind of comes back to then though, is the quality of the meat in terms of the micronutrient density and what we get from it going to be similar to the regular meat. And that's kind of would be my kind of question. Is it still going to be a good enough stand in for that? Um, But I think overall it does. I guess another pro for it or for health is that we do have like on a global scale a food food supply issue, right? When we look at what population will be and how are we going to feed this population, like it's not really going to work at our current means. And so this is definitely another way to kind of handle that. So I think there's a lot of reasons that go into it. The health one for me, I think, you know, the decrease on potentially some contamination and exposure. And so long as that we can get the meat quality the same, then I think there is a good argument for it. Yeah. What about on the, um, the marketing side, do you Mm. feel like people will, you know, it says in the article that very small number of exclusive restaurants will have this. That's obviously a factor of, uh, production scale to a large degree, as well as trying to like seed it as, as some high end something, right? Like, so I get that as a marketing strategy, but do you get the sense that people will say yes to quote unquote cultivated meat. And mm-hmm. even if that's like the positive term that they're going to put on it, ver- you know, cause I still think that that's some of the resistance to, to the plant-based meats, right? right? Is, meat. yeah, is, is, is just people's perception of like, well, if I'm going to have a hamburger, I'm going to have a hamburger, yeah. right? So like the plant-based meats to me makes sense if you're a vegetarian or a vegan and like, that's already part of who you are mm-hmm. and cool. This is a new product that fits in with that lifestyle with those choices. But for, you know, Joe, Kathy, uh, you know, American Midwestern loves their cheeseburgers and, and steak. I don't know that plant-based meats is going to, is going to sell. Do Do you have any sense that like cultivated meats, this, this thing Mm. would do anything different? Or do you feel like it would still be some people for their, for very, for, for some reason will say yes to it, but the by and large, the vast majority of us won't. Yeah. Well, I think two things will be the big kind of hurdles. One is going to be price. Mm-hmm. And right now, because it's not at scale, I think I saw something like it's at least $15 a pound. So that's going to be a no for a lot, a lot of people. Um, but if they can get something down, like let's say $2 a pound for chicken yep. and it tastes like it, I think that's going to be huge, right? Mm. Um I do think there's something interesting from the marketing point of view, as well as the company who created it. And I need it. I looked a little into it, but you know, so long as the company has kind of, um, a positive and they've been a, like, you know, been doing this all for the right reasons from the beginning and have been really transparent as long as they have, I think some people on board to accept it early, I think that's going to be big. 
you know, if they have any sort of lawsuit come out that they didn't, I don't know, yep. disclose something about some test on one of the additives, or I don't know what it could possibly be. Those are going to be some of the initial hurdles of like how, how much data they produced and how many different, you know, whatever trials of safety and all of that stuff, because I'm sure there's going to be people looking at it as, as something that they want um, to not be successful. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I think those are the kind of the big ones for sure would be one price. And then two, what kind of um, background does the company have how transparent motives, all of that stuff um, to get the acceptance? Yeah. Super interesting. Okay. Well, we will have to, we'll do another episode if uh, anybody yes. starts eating this for real. Um, cool. Thank you. We see that was hotcakes. If folks out there have like, they run across something on Instagram or, or on the internet or wherever uh, that they're like, I wonder what EC thinks about this. Uh, find me on Instagram, PS Cummings, drop me a DM. Let me know. I'll add it to our list and we'll try to get it into a future hotcakes. Thank you, EC. Thank you everybody out there for listening. Thank you for your ratings and reviews. Do be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you are listening. So you don't miss another episode. EC and I will be back next week for another episode of The Consistency Project. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I know there is a ton of content out there, and I'm really grateful that you took the time to listen to The Consistency Project. If you enjoyed the show, I appreciate you leaving a five-star rating and review. And sharing it on social media or recommending it to your friends and family really does help the podcast grow. As the podcast grows, I can keep bringing you weekly content. And if you want even more bonus content, you can join my email list at optimizemenutrition.com slash email. There's weekly emails, and it's also the best way to get your questions answered on the podcast. Just hit reply to any email to get in the queue, or even just send ideas in for future podcast episodes. Again, to do that, join my email list at optimizemenutrition.com slash email, and the link is also in the show notes. I'll see you there.